Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. morning. If you have a Bible, please take it and turn to Matthew chapter 6. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. This morning we are diving back into our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Lord willing, we will conclude this study together at the end of February. But we're in chapter 6 now and If you remember where we had left off last time, it it may not have been the nicest thing to do to you in hindsight, because I preached part one of this sermon in verses 19 to 21 of chapter 6 at the end of November, and then we took a month off for our Advent series in December, thus leaving you hanging for part two. And I know you've been waited with bated breath to hear part two of this sermon, so we'll be looking at part two. This morning and the title of this morning's message is Storing Up Treasure in Heaven, Part 2. However, in God's good providence, and it always is good, our passage this morning, I, I do think, will prove to be a very timely one as we enter into this new year, as we enter into 2024, because... Jesus is going to turn to address here now some topics that may be a real struggle for you in 2024. A real struggle for you. If you remember, Jesus is addressing here how as citizens of his kingdom, we should think about, we should use, we should invest our money, the priority of making eternal investments of storing up treasure in heaven, not on the earth. But more importantly, this passage this morning is about our relationship with God. It's about viewing our money and our finances in relationship to God. In fact, if you notice in our text there in verse 24, he says, you cannot serve God and money. And so I think... This passage will show itself to be very relevant and practical and helpful for us in how we use and how we think about our money in the year 2024 and beyond. Let's see it together. Matthew chapter 6, if you have your place there, would you please, out of honor for the reading of God's word, stand with me. I'll begin reading in verse 19. The Apostle Matthew writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the very words of Jesus himself, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. You can be seated. Well, it isn't surprising to me. It's no surprise that at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will turn to address here now two of the biggest struggles we face in the Christian life. Two of the biggest struggles that we face in life, even as Christians. And those two struggles are money and anxiety. Money and anxiety. Jesus addresses money, if you notice here in our passage, verses 19 to 24. And the next time, he's going to address anxiety in verse 25 through 34. I wonder, beloved, if those are two struggles that you face regularly. Anxiety and money. The temptation toward materialism and the temptation toward worry. In fact, it probably shouldn't be too surprising that we find Jesus here pairing these two topics together, that they actually come together here in the sermon back to back. Now, why is that? Well, because one typically leads to the other, wouldn't you say? Money oftentimes leads to anxiety. Why is that? Because the place that money and possessions occupy in your heart, or if you put your trust in money, that is probably going to affect the level of anxiety in your life. When that idol of the heart is messed with, when it's touched, it usually leads to anxiety. While at the same time, if you aren't trusting in money, but you're trusting in God, If he has your heart, if he is your treasure, and if you're focused on pursuing heavenly riches and heavenly rewards rather than earthly ones, then you are probably going to find that you aren't gripped by anxiety and worry. The two often go hand in hand. And so Jesus here first addresses money, the danger of materialism. He'll look at anxiety next week. But he's addressing here the danger of materialism, putting your trust in money and possessions. And isn't that true as we find ourselves coming out of a season of the year, the Christmas season, where this danger toward materialism is very real? In an article entitled recently, Has Materialism Distracted Your Heart? Author Emmanuel Marsh writes this, Perhaps no other season puts our tendency toward materialism into focus more than Christmas time. All the advertisements promise us something, pleasure, status, 
convenience, comfort, empty promises. So how do we resist the pull toward materialism during this season, he asks. Jesus gives us the answer in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus, he writes, offers an alternative to accumulating more things or worrying about our needs. What does he offer instead? We develop, he says, a kingdom perspective. A kingdom perspective. We seek the kingdom. We pursue God and his will on the earth. The problem, he writes, with materialism isn't about gaining possessions. The problem is about losing perspective. We need a kingdom perspective. And that's what Jesus wants to offer us here this morning. He wants to offer us a perspective, a a heavenly perspective, an eternal perspective. And he does that by giving us here three things. Three things I want you to see. Notice, number one, two commands about treasure. We see that in verses 19 to 21. Two commands about treasure. Second, two conditions of our eye. Verses 22 and 23. And then third, two masters to serve in verse 24. So that's the outline we're following this morning. Now, back at the end of November, we spent the whole sermon focusing on point one. You've slept since then. It's been a little while. So we probably need to review point one first. Because if we aren't crystal clear here, on what Jesus actually is saying about money, then we're probably going to go astray. There are all kinds of things that people think the Bible says about money that the Bible does not say about money. And so we need to be clear and we need to be careful about what Jesus is and isn't teaching us here about money. First of all, this is all review, the Bible doesn't have a negative view of money. The Bible does not have a negative view of money. Money is not inherently evil. Nor does the Bible have a negative view of pursuing our own self-interests. Both of those ideas are dead wrong. First, money doesn't have, or ne- the Bible doesn't have a negative view of money. Money isn't the root of all evil. That's often how you hear it misquoted from 1 Timothy 6. No, the love of money is the root of all evil. Money can actually be used, as we'll see, for all kinds of good ends, all kinds of heavenly things, kingdom-oriented things, eternal things. It doesn't have a negative view of money, nor does the Bible have a negative view of pursuing your own self-interests. In fact, it assumes that you will. No, the Christian should be in this for their own joy, for their own pleasure. But the problem, as C.S. Lewis famously said, is that we are far too easily pleased. We're, we're, we're okay with making mud pies in the slums, he says, rather than when God offers us a holiday at the beach. We're far 
too easily pleased. The Bible assumes, Christian, you will pursue your own self-interest. You're going to do what's best for your own eternal good and your own eternal joy. Now, the problem is that we pursue that in the wrong things. No, you should seek your own heavenly eternal reward. In fact, Jesus commands us to do as much. Look there, verse 20 of our text. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You're doing this for yourself. He doesn't say don't pursue treasure. What does he say? Just don't pursue it. Don't lay it up in the wrong way, in the wrong place. The Bible isn't against self-interest, but it is against pursuing your own self-interest apart from God, who is the treasure of our souls. So he wants us to have the right perspective money, on money. So what does he do? Well, by way of review, number one, he gives us here, notice, two commands about treasure. Look there, verses 19 to 21. We're not going to spend much time here. We looked at this in detail last time, but look there in verses 19 to 21, he gives us... A negative command, what not to do, and a positive command, what we should do. And then he gives two reasons or incentives for why we should or shouldn't obey these two commands. So first, just notice with me the negative command. Look there, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. So Jesus isn't teaching us not to lay up treasures for ourselves. He's simply telling us, don't lay them up, don't store them up on the earth. Don't invest your money, don't invest your, 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 your riches, your resources into things that are going to pass away, into things that aren't going to last you when you leave this earth. Why? Well, look at verse 19. He gives a reason. Because moths eat them, rust destroys them. And thieves steal them. In other words, they're not going to last. They aren't safe from decay or depravity. So the problem isn't treasures. They aren't inherently bad. The problem is that we want money and prosperity and pleasure and ease here more than we want treasures and pleasures and rewards in heaven. That's the problem. It's the same problem in real estate. Location, location, location. It's all about where it is and who it is. Is God your treasure or is it stuff? That's the negative command. Notice the positive command, verse 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But, verse 20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Again, nothing wrong with pursuing treasure. It's all a matter of where you're storing them up. And Jesus says, store them up in heaven. Live for eternal riches. Live for eternal rewards. Live for things that are going to last don't live for the dot, live for the line, right? The, the dot. So many of us are focused on living our lives, investing everything in the dot, this little brief blip. And we don't live for the line. We don't live for eternity. The things are going to last. 
Why? Why should we store them up in heaven? Verse 20. Because they'll be protected and enjoyed in the presence of God forever. Moths can't eat them. Rust can't destroy them. Thieves can't touch them. Nobody locks their doors in heaven. Do you know that? They're safe. They're secure. They're insulated. Forever. So what's Jesus appealing to? Well, not only is he appealing to wisdom, don't be a dummy. This is a no-brainer. Make wise investments. Invest wisely. Invest in eternal things. Randy Alcorn says, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead of you. So invest wisely for your future by storing up eternal riches in heaven. They're going to last you for all of eternity. He's appealing to wisdom, just human wisdom. But notice, he's also appealing to your own eternal happiness. Your own self-interests. Author John Piper famously entitled this, Christian Hedonism. Now, whether or not you like that title or not, the idea is all over the Bible. In fact, it's, it's right here, Christian hedonism. That this, this idea has shaped my theology so much over the last 20 years. Now, what is Christian hedonism? Well, a hedonist is someone who lives for pursuing as much pleasure as you can in this life, right? Just sex, drugs, and rock and roll, living for all the pleasures of this world. So, what is Christian hedonism? Christian hedonism, Piper says, claims that the Christian life should be the pursuit of maximum joy in God. In this life and in the next. The pursuit of maximum joy in God. And Jesus wants us to pursue pleasures but he wants us to pursue pleasures that will actually satisfy us and that will actually last us for all of eternity. That will truly satisfy the soul. I was talking with my kids this past week about how after getting all of the gifts they got, all of the earthly treasures, and they got some good stuff. I asked them if there was still, if they could be really honest, really transparent with themselves, if there was still this ache, this longing for just a little bit more. Just a, a little bit more. Why is that? Because those things can never truly satisfy the soul. Only God. There is this God-shaped hole that only God can fill. So church, Jesus wants us to be laser-focused on the things that aren't going to last for merely 20 years of retirement joy. I mean, that's what people live for, investing it all there. He wants you to live for things that will last for 20 billion ages of eternal joy. 
That's the wise investment. And some will have more of that than others based on how they live this life. We saw that last time. So what will truly satisfy your soul? Because look there, verse 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How you spend your money, what you live for, what you pursue, those are the things that truly have your heart. And if Jesus has your heart, if he is first in your heart, then that will be seen in how you think about, how you use, how you spend, how you invest your money. So, this isn't about merely funneling a few dollars to the church. This is about a complete reorientation of your heart. Away from stuff, loving that, maximum joy in God. So we see these two commands. That's all review. Which leads to point number two. Two conditions of the eye. Verses 22 and 23. So after giving us these two commands, Jesus now turns to illustrate this by using here a metaphor of the eye. Now, it's an interesting metaphor. Because if, if we're going to obey these two commands then we must have a good eye. We must have a healthy eye. And yes, it's a little bit odd. We've got to do a little bit work to understand what Jesus means here. But this, beloved, this I think is going to prove to be very helpful and very practical as you think about how you spend your money and how you invest in eternal things. How so? How is this metaphor going to be helpful for you? Well, here, here's how. Because think about it. After reading verses 19 to 21, you might be thinking to yourself, well then, how should I spend my money? Is there like a written manual somewhere for Christians about what they should and shouldn't spend their money on? Right? Should I take all of my kids' Christmas gifts back? Now I got the kids' attention, right? Should I take them all back? Can I, can I ever go on that vacation trip to Florida? Sorry, kids. No Disney World. I'll be honest with you. I went here recently to Rural King and bought a $60 bag of dog food. That doesn't sound like investing in eternity, pastor. So how should I spend my money? Well, the answer is how clearly you see. It's all about your eyesight. Let me show you what I mean. Notice first the structure here of our passage. Just as a side note, okay, this is, this is free today. I'm not going to charge you for this one. Just as a side note, a helpful hermeneutical tip. Interpreting the Bible here. When trying to understand a passage that's a little bit unclear or a metaphor that's a little strange and you don't know how to understand it, here's the thing. Is there anything about verses 19 to 24 that helps you better understand what Jesus might mean in verse 22 and 23? 
Well, look there, verse 19 to 21. Jesus is speaking clearly, as we've just seen, about treasures in heaven. Right? And then down in verse 24, he makes it clear that you can't serve God and money. So he's talking about treasure. He's talking about money. So then what are verses 22 to 23 about, sandwiched there in between those two? Well, context tells us he's still on the topic of what? Money. Treasure. Right? So what's this metaphor about the eyes? What's it about? It's about your money. It's about your treasure. So always look at the surrounding context. Okay? That was free. So what's going on here then? Well, after he gives these two commands, Jesus now here gives a metaphor to illustrate this for thinking about our perspective on money by giving us now two conditions of the eye. And here are the two conditions, a healthy eye and an unhealthy eye, or a good eye and a bad eye. Condition number one, a good eye. Or a healthy eye. Look there, verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Now, what is a healthy eye or a good eye? Well, a healthy eye is an eye that sees what's going on, it's aware of reality. It's going on around you. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying, Christian, you need a healthy eye if you're going to think rightly about money. You need good discernment. You need to see clearly if you're going to invest and you're going to spend your money wisely. Verse 22 The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. In other words, the way that you get light into your body is through the eye. Now, Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. He's not speaking scientifically, right? You say, well, that's not how... What what does that mean? Letting light into the body? No, no. Well, light hits the retina, and special cells turn the light into electrical signals to the brain. He knows that. He made your eye, okay? He's speaking metaphorically here. And he's basically saying that if your eye lets the light in well, then your whole body, your whole being is going to be guided well. It's going to be directed well. Because your eye directs your body. Or as he says in verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So he's speaking here about how your life is directed. So if you are seeing clearly, if you're seeing well, if you have a healthy eye, then you're going to walk straight. You're going to be guided. You're going to be directed in the decisions you make financially. In fact, verse 22, the eye might actually be a metaphor for your heart, as we see in verse 21. But on the other hand, notice the second condition, the bad eye, the unhealthy eye, look at verse 23, 
But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. So on the other hand, if your eye is sick, if it's unhealthy, if it's bad, if your cataracts have grown to where you can't see any longer, you're going to be bumping into things all over the place. You're going to be guided poorly. You're going to be directed poorly. Or if, if you're colorblind, then all the reds and greens of your Christmas decorations are lost to you. You can't discern between them. You can't distinguish between the two because your eyes bad. It's sick. And in the Christian life, there are all kinds of questions without specific answers. We call them gray areas. We call them matters of the conscience. We call them matters of Christian liberty that will come up about money. How am I supposed to know, how am I supposed to discern what's the right use of my money? Can I spend it on a family vacation or should I give it all to the church? Should I give it to the poor? Should I give it to the global missions offering? All kinds of questions. And Jesus says, if you want to know the answers to those kinds of questions, the first thing you need to focus on is your eyesight. How well do you see? Ask yourself, how well do I see? Whether it's $5, $500, or $5 million. Because you will be led to make the right decisions about spending if you have healthy eyes. So what exactly then is a healthy eye? New Testament scholar Charles Quarles says the word healthy there, we're not really helped here in our English translations very much. The word healthy there, or good, literally means single or one. It carries the idea of singleness. R.T. France, the famous Matthew scholar, writes this in his commentary, the word translated healthy is literally single and at its root means complete or perfect when it is, which is often used of undivided loyalty. There it is. So the single or healthy eye, he says, is primarily a metaphor for a life totally devoted to the service of God. A life totally devoted to the service of God. So I was harping on the King James Version last week. I'm actually going to prop it up this week, okay? Because I think it gets it right here. Here's what the King James says in verse 22. If therefore thine eye be single, the whole body shall be full of light. New American Standard translates it, If your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. So it's the idea of singleness. It's the idea of clarity. So a single passion is a healthy eye. It's like looking down the scope of a gun. It's, it's laser focused. It's, it's directed. But those who seek to divide their loyalties, God and money, are going to have double vision, and then they're going to therefore be double-minded. 
And so the Christian, here's what the Christian needs, a single focus. So then, what should a Christian's single focus be? What's the one singular thing that if you and I focused on all of the time, then all the financial decisions, all the financial questions will just sort of work themselves out? What, would, what, what should our focus be? And the answer is actually, interestingly, going to come later in chapter 6. I mentioned it earlier. Look at chapter 6, verse 33. He's actually been talking about the whole sermon, by the way. Look at verse 33. But seek first, what? The kingdom of God. What should you be focused on more than anything? The kingdom of God. When the Christian's eye is set on the kingdom, when your decision making is based on the kingdom, what's best for the kingdom? What's going to advance the kingdom when your eye, your life, your whole being is set there? All your financial decisions are going to work themselves out. Because your life is guided by one single passion. One single focus. The kingdom of God. When your eye isn't set on the kingdom, you're going to be lost in the dark. And you won't be laying up treasure in heaven. So brothers and sisters, if our focus is on the kingdom, then our eye is going to be clear. If you love Jesus and you have a heart for Him, then your eye is clear. If you desire His kingdom more than anything else, your eye sees clearly. If you seek Him according to His word and try to discern His will, your eye is going to be clear. And if your spiritual vision is clear, then you will be able to discern when to give, how much to give, how should you spend your money? Should I spend it on dog food? Should I give it to missions? Randy Alcorn, in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, writes this. Listen to this. Jesus is speaking here about two perspectives, this whole eye illustration. It's all about perspective. The believer's view of reality should be radically different than the non-believer's. We should live differently because we see differently. When our eyes are set on eternity, the news that someone has come to know the Savior means a great deal more than the news of a salary raise or the prospect of, an, of getting the latest high-tech gadget. The Christian who accumulates land, houses, and bank accounts but doesn't invest in eternity isn't depicted by Jesus in this sermon as unrighteous or selfish, though he might be all of those things. Rather, he's depicted as being short-sighted. Short-sighted. Beloved, are you focused on the kingdom? Let me just give you two biblical illustrations of this before I move to my third point. Two illustrations that we see in the Bible. One of being too short-sighted, a bad eye. One of being having an eternal perspective, a clear eye. The first example, if you want to turn there, if you just want to listen, Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 it's the parable of the rich fool. 
Jesus tells a story of a rich man who has so much stuff that he doesn't even have a place to store it all. You notice how many like rental storage unit places are popping up everywhere? It's like Dollar Generals, my goodness. Why? Because people got a lot of stuff. He didn't even have a place to store it all, and so the rich man decides, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barns, and I'm going to build bigger ones to store it all. That seems like a really wise thing to do. But then, verse 20, Jesus says this, God said to him, fool, fool, this night your soul is required of you. This is about his soul. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? You can't take it with you. Who, who, who's it going to be left to? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Why is he a fool? He was too nearsighted. He wasn't rich toward God. He wasn't investing in eternity. That's the bad example. Now let's look at a good example. Go to Mark chapter 12. The poor widow. A good eye she had. Mark chapter 12, Jesus is in the temple. He's watching people as they're putting money into the offering boxes. He sees you as you do that. Many are putting in large sums of money. But he sees a widow who puts in, the text tells us, two small copper coins which make a penny. I mean, she barely has two pennies to rub together. I mean, two that make a penny. Money that no doubt she could have used to live on. Buy bread. But Jesus sees it. And he says, actually, that's an eternally wise investment. In fact, verse 44, she, the widow, Jesus says, out of her poverty, put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Every investment guru would tell you that's not a financially wise decision. Jesus doesn't think that. She didn't have six months of wages stored up in her savings account. That's wise, he says. In fact, she gave more than everybody else. So how do you know when it's time to give and when it's time to keep for yourself? It's all about perspective. It's all about having a healthy, singular eye with your vision set on the kingdom. If your eye is focused on the kingdom, I think it will probably answer many of the financial questions you have. Last point. Third, two masters to serve. Verse 24. Two masters. So if we're going to obey these two commands, if we're going to have a clear, healthy eye, then we can only have, Jesus says, one master. So after talking about two treasures, two conditions of the eye, notice now two masters. Verse 24, 
No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus isn't saying it's hard to serve God and money. He isn't saying it's going to be really difficult if you try to serve God and money. It's impossible. It is impossible to serve God and money. Notice verse 24. Master. Master. It's meant to communicate a, a slave owner. Commentator William Tasker writes, Single ownership and full-time service are of the essence of slavery. You can only have one master. Jesus is saying you, you can only be a slave to one master. You can't be a slave to two different kinds of masters. Devotion to God and obsession with money are mutually exclusive. There are no exceptions. No one can serve two masters. No one is capable of divided loyalties. And Jesus is insisting that when a person tries to divide their loyalties between two masters, between God and between money, they will inevitably, he says, end up hating one and loving the other or being devoted to the one and despising the other. It's inevitable. They are mutually exclusive. And listen carefully. There's a reason why Jesus spoke about money more in the Bible than he did about heaven and hell combined. Because how you handle this subject may be determining where you are. If you try to serve God and money, you will end up Hating God. Hating Him when He asks you for your money. Seeing Him as a threat to your ambitions. A threat to your way of life. A threat to your savings account. I don't care if you have many dollars or you have few dollars. This is for rich and poor. Because maybe... His priorities don't have your dream home high on his agenda list. And the greater your love for money grows, the more your love for God will diminish. The more your obsession with money increases, the more your passion for God will decrease. Guaranteed. The only way, brothers and sisters, that we can faithfully walk in our money decisions, in our spending in our investing, in our purchasing, is if we are 100% given to Jesus. And the thought of serving money rather than Him despises us. So that's Jesus' advice, His teaching on money. Two commands about treasure, two conditions of the eye, Two masters to serve. So then what does that look like practically as we close? Let me give you one very practical application. Especially as we think about how we spend our money in 2024. 
What are you going to invest in? What are you going to give your money to in 2024? And even as we think about voting on a church budget for 2024 after our service here in a moment. And I'll give you this application in the form of a question. And here's where it's going to make some of you really uncomfortable. Here's the question. Here's the application. Does your giving to the local church reflect a heart that is laying up treasures in heaven? Does your giving to the local church reflect a heart that is laying up treasures in heaven? Yes, I know that there are giving, givings outside of the local church, beyond the local church, but faithful giving, according to the Bible, begins as a first priority with your local church. Because the local church is at the very center of God's plan to build His kingdom. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the only institution He promised to build. Not schools, not hospitals, the local church. So does your giving to the local church reflect a clear eye with a single attention and devotion to what really matters? Does the amount you give show that you're serving one master or does your giving reflect that you're trying to serve two masters? Because throughout the New Testament, the pattern of God's people is that they use their money to advance the kingdom of heaven through the local church. Not exclusively, but primarily. Let me give you some examples. First, through the local church, the early church gave to the poor, to mercy ministry needs. Let me just show you this. Acts chapter 4. Look there. Acts chapter 4, verse 34. This is the early church giving to the poor. Notice how they're doing it. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So notice how the early church was organized. Do you see this? Led by the apostles, the church leaders, collecting the money. So everyone isn't you know, just doing what they think is best. Notice there's a collective gathering, and then it's being distributed by the church. So what kind of mercy ministry needs should we be giving to as a church in 2024? This is what it looks like if you're going to be focused on the kingdom. Gathered, distributed by the church. And if that unsettles you, church leaders figuring out how to do that, then maybe you need to examine who your church leaders are. Giving that's then distributed. Here's the second one. Or look at verse 36, the same text. We see the same with Barnabas. You remember Barnabas? Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him. And what did he do? 
He brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So mercy ministry needs being met through the local church. Here's the second. The second one we see. The New Testament commands not just the care for mercy ministry through the church, but to provide for their pastors through the giving of the local church. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul tells Timothy, look at verse 17 here. That the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So notice the pattern of the early church. What did they do? They were to raise wages for their pastors who watch over them and feed them and guard them and lead them. Galatians chapter 6, verse 6, let the one who is taught share all good things with the one who teaches. And I say that without blushing. I say that without feeling self-serving. I say that based on the authority of the Bible. This is how the, the early church gathered and distributed money for the sake of the kingdom. Here's the third one, final one. Missionaries are sent out, supported, and funded through the local church. The local church was, in the early church, and should be today, the major sending organization of missionaries. I love the International Mission Board, but it is the local church that should be funding and supporting and sending missionaries to the nations. Notice here, 3 John, 3 John, verses 6 through 8. You will do well to send them on their journey. They're going out. They're being sent out. These traveling evangelists, these missionaries, you'll do well to send them on your journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. They're not getting support letters from their unbelieving Uncle Steve, okay? No, therefore, we, the church, ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers, of the truth. Do you see that? When we support and send missionaries, we're actually fellow workers with them in their, in their work. Second Baptist Church, this is the way that the church advances the kingdom of God with their money. This is the way that this church should advance the kingdom of God with its money. It's the primary way in which we will invest in storing up treasure in heaven. And it should guide how we think about and how you think about giving to the local church in 2024. Can you give in 2024 in a way that demonstrates you're focused on the kingdom? Could you increase it? Even voting on church budgets, I mean, that's not, that's a matter of us stewarding the money that God has given to us for the sake of the kingdom. What does your bank account tell you about your investments in the kingdom of heaven? Are you laying up treasures in the way the New Testament laid up treasures, the New Testament church? How will you invest? Many of you are giving faithfully, generously sacrificially, cheerfully, and God sees. I don't see. God sees. Some of you may be slacking. 
And I don't know why that is. You know, there's a statistic that shows that young people and single people give less percentage-wise than older people. And, they, and some will say, well, that's because they have less money. No, I'm talking about percentage of giving here. This church is filled with young people. Let's not that st- let that statistic be true of us. Let's show the world that we're focused on the kingdom, young people, single people. Maybe the cares of this life are pressing in on, on your faith and your reliance on, on, on God. Maybe you think that you don't make enough. Baloney. Remember the poor widow. Maybe the time never seems right because there's all these, you know, home remodel projects or there's, you know, financial issues that, that come up. What does your giving say about your priorities? Let me end with a story and an illustration. I'll be done. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he tells the story of a farmer to illustrate this point. And he says this. It's the story of a farmer who one day went happily and with great joy in his heart to report to his wife and family that their best cow had given birth to twin calves, a red one and a white one. And he said, you know, I have suddenly had a feeling of an impulse that we must dedicate one of these calves to the Lord. We will bring them up together, and when the time comes, we will sell one and keep the proceeds, and then we'll sell the other and give the proceeds to the Lord's work. His wife asked him which he was going to dedicate to the Lord. Oh, there's no need to bother about that now, he replied. We will treat them both in the same way, and when the time comes, we will do as I say. And off he went. Lloyd-Jones says, in a few months' time, the man entered his kitchen again, looking very miserable and unhappy. When his wife asked him what was troubling him, he answered, I have some bad news to give you. The Lord's calf is dead. But, she said to him, you, you may not, you had not decided which was to be the Lord's calf. Oh, yes, he said, I had always decided it was to be the white one, and it is the white one who has died. The Lord's calf is dead. Now, we may laugh at that story, Lloyd-Jones says, but God forbid that we should, he says, be laughing at ourselves. It is always the Lord's calf that dies. When money becomes difficult, the first thing we economize on, he says, is our contribution to God's work. Beloved, let's make sure that our Lord gets the calf he deserves. So let me close with this encouragement. As you think about your giving to the kingdom work in 2024, and I want to use the example of the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Just notice this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Paul's writing to the Corinthians here about the Macedonians. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. I want you to know about how they've given. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, they were very poor, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means more than they could, 
could even give. Of their own accord, begging us earnestly. They were begging to give for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. That was their priority. And then, by the will of God, to us. Why? What was it that caused them or motivated them to live with this radical generosity? Well, look what Paul says in verses 8 and 9. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also be genuine. Corinthians, in other words, I'm, I'm giving you the example of Macedonians to encourage you to do the same. And look what he says. For, here's what motivated them. And what should motivate us. You know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, heavenly riches, he yet for your sake became poor. He emptied himself so that by his poverty we might become eternally rich. So church, let's make sure our master gets what he deserves. The one who for the sake of the poor became poor so that we might become rich. Let's pray. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.